From the Heart.org Radio, this is The Fellow's Corner. Hello, I'm Mara Monavecki, Chief Medical Resident at Northwestern University in Chicago and Future Cardiology Fellow at Loyola University Medical Center. It's my honor today to be speaking with Dr. Philip Greenland of Northwestern Feinberg School of Medicine. He is the Harry W. Dingman Professor, Senior Associate Dean for Clinical and Translational Research, and also the Director of the Northwestern University Clinical and Translational Sciences Institute. Thank you very much for taking time to speak with us today, Dr. Greenland. Thank you, Mario. Happy to be here. Well, today we'd like to focus our conversation on the area of preventive cardiology, more specifically in regards to the topics of predictive value of novel studies in cardiovascular disease assessment, including novel biomarkers such as CRP and non-invasive radiological studies such as coronary calcium scoring. Hopefully, if we have some time at the end of the discussion today, we can touch on the avenues of developing a career in the blossoming field of cardiovascular epidemiology and preventive cardiology. So first off, Dr. Greenland, prior to discussing any specifics today, I wanted to touch on a possibly foreign concept to most early cardiology fellows in regards to the idea of predictive values in clinical trials. We often discuss relative risks or odds ratios, but rarely discuss the utility of AUCs, also known as Area Under the Receiver Operating Characteristic Curve, or C-statistic. Could you give us a better understanding of what the C-statistic is, the appropriate utilization of this, and how it relates to prediction in regards to coronary disease? I'll be happy to. I think what most physicians would readily understand is that there are many, many studies out there that have described various cardiology-related tests. Examples would be cholesterol measurement, blood pressure measurement, body weight, blood sugar, C-reactive protein, you name it, lots of different tests out there. And I think it would be also readily recognized by any physician that each of these individual tests acting alone as a predictor of future cardiac-related events is not very good. Even ones that we're very excited about and that we treat on a daily basis, like blood cholesterol level, as a single test, it's not a very good way of discriminating people who are going to eventually get cardiac-related event, people who are not. So, for example, although we know that on average people who have higher cholesterol levels tend to be more likely to get coronary events than people who have lower cholesterol levels, we still know that many people with low cholesterol levels or relatively low cholesterol levels end up getting coronary events. And at the same time, people who have high cholesterol levels very often don't get coronary events. So, What's happened over the years is that these single tests have generally fallen out of favor as predictive tests, and we've started using combinations of tests. And the one that's relatively popular, the one that's recommended frequently, is the Framingham Risk Score, which is the one that's touted by the National Cholesterol Education Program. And the advantage of that is that it tries to combine together a number of predictive tests to improve prediction over single tests. And even the Framingham risk score, as we know, doesn't completely differentiate people who will get coronary disease and people who don't. Now, that's the background. What about the C-statistic? What does this do? Well, the C-statistic is simply a way of defining the probability that somebody who will have the disease or get the disease would tend to have a higher value for the predictive test than somebody who either 
currently doesn't have the disease or won't get the disease. So if you read in a paper that's describing a predictive model or a predictive test, and it says that the C statistic is 0.7, putting that into words, that would mean that if one would randomly select a person from the affected population, the probability that somebody would have a higher test value, a higher predicted value, than somebody who is randomly selected from the non-affected, probability that the test in the affected group would be higher is that number, 0.7. So obviously, the higher that number, the higher the C statistic, the more likely it is that people who are affected have higher values than people who don't. And what we've been seeking for many years is predictive tests that would give very, very high C statistic. And, you know, visually what that would mean is that the distribution of test values for affected people are not overlapping, significantly higher than people who are unaffected. So where we are right now in cardiology is that tests like the Framingham risk score, combination of various risk factors, in many, many populations, C statistic is about 0.75 or thereabouts. And one of the ways that we can determine whether new tests, whether it's coronary calcium or C-reactive protein or any other new test, is useful in improving what we call discrimination, the ability to separate affected from unaffected. And the measure of discrimination is simply the C-statistic. So as far as the coronary calcium scores or the CRP, more specifically CRP, it's kind of been a hot topic over the last five-plus years, even more recently with the results of the Jupiter trial. What is the role of CRP, and how does it benefit, and how does it add to the C-statistic as far as what we know at this point? Well, there have been a number of studies that have looked at whether C-reactive protein as a, let's say, screening test across the board added to the Framingham risk score, added to the standard risk factors, does it really improve the C statistic? And I think the general answer to that question is not very much. It may improve it slightly, but in most of the studies that have reported about this, C-reactive protein hasn't improved C statistic very much. On the other hand, that doesn't necessarily negate the possibility that C-reactive protein could be useful in some other way. It might not be particularly useful as a screening test, let's say, across the board in all healthy patients, for example. But what the Jupiter study showed is that in a population of people who would not currently be considered candidates for drug therapy, meaning people whose LDLs were not greater than 130 at the baseline value. And I personally wouldn't call that a normal LDL. I would just say that's not at the level where we currently have assigned the need or the impetus to treat with drugs. So it's a population that is not currently considered a candidate for drug therapy. And Jupiter showed that in that group, if the C-reactive protein was above two, that would define a group that actually benefited from the rosuvastatin therapy compared to placebo. So does this tell us that C-reactive protein is a useful screening test? No, I don't think so. I think what it tells us is that if you could define a population that looked like the Jupiter patients, then apply C-reactive protein in that group, 
this would define a group that looks like Jupiter and would probably benefit from rosuvastatin. And as you probably know, Mauro, that's what the FDA recently ruled on and widened the approval for use of rosuvastatin. Some people, I think, with those recommendations as well as the results from the Jupiter trial, obviously negate what the Framingham risk score brings to the table. But some people will say, well, why don't we treat virtually almost all of our patients that kind of meet those criteria or look similar to that? And I think they used age groups for men, I believe, over 50 and right. women, I think, and it was 60. 60. Right. Is there a role of just treating it empirically, or does it seem that this would hold true pretty well for a, a similar group as far as what we should be doing out there? Well, I think you're raising a really interesting and undoubtedly at this point in time controversial topic. I think what Jupiter also showed us in addition to this potential role of C-reactive protein is that at least it suggests the possibility that if you have a high enough risk, a high enough baseline risk, whether it's due to standard risk factors or C-reactive protein, the possibility exists that if you take a statin, that you're going to get benefit. And as you, I'm sure, know, and many of the residents listening to this will undoubtedly know, the magical numbers that have been assigned for use of drug therapy by programs like the NCEP, those numbers don't necessarily entirely come from evidence-based medicine. They come as well from extrapolation from the statin trials. And if we could imagine a point in time where it would become cost-effective and safe to treat a broader group of patients with statins, as an example, I think that we'd come up with different guidelines. And there have been calls, as you, I'm sure, know, for clinical trials in which preventive therapies would be used more broadly, you know, mm -hmm. maybe by age. You know, I think people would like to see those kinds of clinical trials done, Maybe a comparison, for example, of a risk stratification strategy versus a treat-all above a certain age strategy. But what really defines the current decisions about therapy is a combination of what we know about the benefits of therapy, what we know about the risks, and what we know about cost-effectiveness. And I think these are going to change. They're not going to stay static over the next several years. I think we're going to see a number of changes in recommendations and probably a broadening of the indications for the use of primary prevention therapies. So kind of switching gears a little bit away from CRP and kind of on the topic, a little bit of coronary calcium scoring, how has that played a role and is that going to potentially play a larger role as far as risk stratification in the future as well in your mind? Well, I think there are a lot of people that are quite excited about coronary calcium measurement as a risk stratifying tool. And I think the reason behind that is that in contrast to what I said earlier about CRP not really budging the C-statistic, coronary calcium moves the C-statistic needle a fair amount. For example, from the multi-ethnic study of atherosclerosis, paper published last year in the New England Journal by DeTrano and colleagues from the MESA study, the C-statistic with standard risk factors was about 0.78, which is, as I said earlier, fairly typical. And when coronary calcium was added to that, it boosted it up to 0.83. Is that a large increase? Well, compared to what we see typically, that's a very large increase. And our group at Northwestern has recently looked at 
the possibility of another kind of measure that's been recently appearing in the literature, which is called reclassification. And what we found was very, very substantial degrees of reclassification of people out of the intermediate risk group using coronary calcium either to high risk on the one hand or to so-called low risk on the other hand. And those data are not yet published, and we're due to present them actually fairly soon. But the bottom line that I can share with the group is that we did see very, very substantial reclassification with coronary calcium. And I think that creates the possibility that at least in people who, by standard risk factors, are intermediate risk, that a test like coronary calcium really might make a difference. And one of the things that our group thinks needs to happen is perhaps a clinical trial along the lines I said earlier, comparing maybe a calcium-based strategy, calcium testing strategy versus treat-all strategy to see what's the winner there, which testing and treatment approach would work the best. Yeah, that would be very interesting. So anything else that seems to be on the horizon as far as novel biomarkers or other imaging studies that kind of seem to be out there hovering, ready to kind of make a break at some point in the near future, or this kind of where we're at right now? Well, I think there's two quick things that I would say. One is that I think that there's a great deal of optimism that some of the genomics, proteomics, or metabolomics testing might substantially improve risk prediction. I think so far what we've seen is genomics hasn't really improved risk prediction very much. The size of the associations, as I'm sure most people know, has been very, very modest, very small. So I personally think genomics is not going to make that much of a difference. But I think that there's a possibility that proteomics and metabolomics really might make a difference, and that's research that's you know being undertaken right now. The other thing that I think you know about, Mauro, is some of our colleagues at Northwestern have been very interested in lifetime cardiovascular risk as opposed to the Framingham approach, which is a 10-year risk assessment. And I think more work that needs to be done in that area to see whether it actually you know, leads to meaningful changes in treatment and risk assessment. But I think that's a on-the-horizon thing that people ought to keep their eyes out for. I think that that's going to be a very interesting field coming up in the future. I think one of the things that people commonly talk about and a lot of my fellow residents and some of the fellows out there discuss is the concern about the obesity epidemic in the United States and, you know, that as a primary prevention target and trying to target that as ultimately more of a lifestyle modification aspect. Are there things that are going on out there that ultimately have been targeted towards that, or is this something that is just a little bit too hard to control from our standpoint at this point? I think that, as you point out, Mario, this is a huge problem and a growing problem. And I think that this is finally getting onto the radar screen of all the major organizations, American Heart Association, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and so forth. And I think that it's going to take a concerted effort because the lack of physical activity and physical activity programs in the schools and so forth is a societal problem that's going to need to be addressed. The pervasive snacking and snack foods and eating all the time is something that is going to take a societal effort. And this has become a societal problem, not an individual problem. And my sense about it is that the only way that we're really going to be successful 
in attacking this is treating it in that way, not the way we've been doing it over the years with individual, you know, Weight Watcher programs or weight-reducing drugs. I think it's going to take a much more concerted effort in the schools, in the educational systems, and society in general. We're a very sedentary society, and at least in our culture, food is just everywhere. So that's probably, to my mind, the way it needs to be addressed. Well, to wrap things up, I just wanted to touch a little bit on how to get into the field of preventative cardiology and how to go about uh, developing a career in cardiac epidemiology as well, and maybe take us through the pathway that you went, maybe some other pathways that are out there for fellows currently. Well, first of all, I think that almost any cardiologist these days is in preventive cardiology, whether they knew it or not. In my professional lifetime as a cardiologist, we've gone from essentially watching heart attacks happen and not being able to do very much about it to a whole raft of of very effective preventive strategies, whether they're lifestyle-based or drug-based. So I think that almost anybody in cardiology needs to know a lot about the data that's out there for prevention. But for somebody that's really passionate about it, really wants to focus their career on it, I think there's a lot of different options. And that's because there's more and more established investigators that are out there interested in prevention strategies, either testing strategies or treatment. There are quite well-established training programs at many institutions all over the United States, both coasts and in between. There's probably a dozen or so, at this point, NHLBI-supported training programs, either in preventive cardiology or cardiovascular epidemiology. And so I think for a person, either with a general medicine background or a cardiology background, I think a person that wants to get more in-depth would probably want to seek out one of those highly specialized programs where they can really go in-depth, but not to overdo it with what I said, you know, at the outset. I think that almost any program nowadays in cardiology, it's part of the standard criteria for accreditation of cardiology programs. So it is kind of essential to standard cardiology training and practice. Well, I just want to say thank you very much for taking time out of your day today to discuss this stuff with us, and I really appreciate it. Well, it's a pleasure to do so, and I wish you Best of luck and uh, all the residents listening to this as well. Thank you so much. You've been listening to The Fellows Corner on the Heart.org radio.